Last week I shared some things with you as we uh, started up the Gospel of John. And um, I'm going to continue with just a couple of things, but I have to start out today with an apology. Um, first off, uh, I owe my wife an apology. And uh, I, no, I don't owe Matt an apology. I owe Mitzi an apology. I, I think I owe Andy an apology. I want to say thank you to everyone from the Wednesday morning Bible study. Jesus answers prayer. My, uh, my Gospel of John Bible was stolen last week <laughs> at the end of service by a deacon of all people, but he has repented and I forgave him. And I just want to encourage you all to personalize your Gospel of John Bible <laughs> because they all look alike, okay? And so bad... <laughs> It was an honest mistake, but I did. I, Andy and I tore up this building looking. I did find somebody else's, by the way. We, I'm not sure. I think it might have been Matt's, but uh, thank you. So yeah, uh, be smarter than me and, and do a little something so you know it's yours. And I particularly chose googly eyes because I figured nobody wants to walk around with a googly eye Bible except me. So uh, the other apology is, once again, we're going to skip a rock across the Gospel of John, and, and we're not going to be able to go that deep. So part of that is on you later this week. You're going to have to read in, and, and you're going to have to study and look at this word because it's amazing. And today, we're going to hit two chapters. We're going chapter 2 and chapter 3. And some things I want you to know about chapter, well, as we go into chapter 2 and 3, John uses the word believe over 100 times in his Gospel. In in the Synoptic Gospels, it happens, you see the word believe fewer than 40 times in, in the other three combined. And also, the noun faith doesn't occur in John, but it's used in the other Gospels. These are just some things I like to point out along the way, just little nuggets of joy, if you will, uh, as you're studying this. Something else, the word eternal, or the phrase eternal life, you'll see it around 35 times in John's Gospel, but only 12 times in the Synoptic Gospels. All right, so see, once again, John is talking about his best friend Jesus, and he's sharing with us that his best friend Jesus offers eternal life. And it's not, it's really simple that John wants people to know. And it's like I said last week, how could you not be excited to share this? So, eternal life, he talks about that. Another thing, there are 11 specific signs in the Gospel of John, okay? Something else I found that was unique to John's gospel, there are no parables in John's gospel, okay? The, the word parable occurs one time, and that's in John chapter 10, verse 6. We'll get there in a few weeks. But it's not the regular Greek word. I'm probably going to mess it up, but it's parabole. It's a Greek word that's paroema, emia. And so the first one means to come alongside. A parable is, a, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's what we say. And so that's what the first one means. It comes alongside. It's a story that comes along with a, with a certain meaning or, or a point that directs to Jesus or to heaven. Paroemia is more like an allegory. It's a saying. It's kind of like, hey, consider this. Think about it for a while. Simmer on it and, and let, it, let it go with you. Later on in John, there's a story of a good shepherd. It's not a parable so much as it's a discourse or an allegory. The record of the lost sheep, uh, as an example, in Luke chapter 15 is a parable. But in John, the figures that Jesus uses are more in the nature of metaphors when we get into that. So there's something for you to think about as you're uh, picked up the challenge of reading a chapter of John every day. 
think about those things as you go through the next 21 days. One of the things I love about John and the way he wrote his gospel is he puts things in chronological order. John says things like, and the very next day we went to this place. He, he also presents sequence of events. He gives us attention to places and cities. That, for example, he said in, in John 1, 28, in Bethany across the Jordan where Jesus was baptizing. He sets up the place, the kind of the, the, what's going on, the events. And so he, he calls those things out. In John chapter 2, verse 1, for example, he says, In Cana of Galilee, speaking of Cana and Galilee, that's where we're going to start out. Jesus and the disciples have been invited to a wedding. And now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to story this. And so if you want to take some notes, I'm, I'm specifically going to be talking about John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I got, I got a few notes myself in here now that I found my Bible. Um, <clears throat> Starts out, and again, John being specific. On the third day, there's a wedding in Cana, at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and the disciples were invited. And so, culturally, a wedding lasted from in, around seven to ten days. It was a big deal. And, and, and in the evening time, there was always a feast. And this particular evening, at the feast, the servants realize they're running out of wine. Apparently, it was a pretty good party. Everybody was celebrating. And their servants went to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and said, I'm sure it wasn't loud. I would like to think that it was like, Mary, how's everything going? You enjoying this? Yeah. We're about to run out of wine. Now, I have a couple questions in my head. I'm not sure why they went to Mary, because it wasn't her, wasn't her wedding. It wasn't her party, so to speak. But nonetheless, they went to Mary. And Mary went to Jesus. And she said, Jesus, they're running out of wine. And Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? He said, my time has not yet come. Now, we're going to talk about that in a second. So don't get hung up on the fact that Jesus called his mom woman. And, 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 and so we'll just, just don't. Don't stay there. you got to keep coming with me in this story. He said, my time has not yet come. And then, this is my favorite part, one of my favorite parts. Because this is what moms do. She turned to the servants and she said, whatever he says, you just go ahead and do it. (laughs) And Jesus said to the servant, hey, get the ceremonial washing jars. And fill them up with water. Now, these washing jars are big. And they're, they're for ceremonial washing. They're for kind of tableside bathing, if you will. Washing your hands, preparing yourself to eat. And Jesus tells the servants, fill those up with water. So they did. Because Mary told the servants, whatever he says, do it. So they fill them up with water. And then Jesus says to them, dip the water out of those jars and go serve the master of the ceremonies. Now, the master of the ceremonies was not always like the father of the bride. There was someone who, they were kind of like the wedding planner, but they didn't call him that back then. It was the master of the ceremonies. He was in charge of, of all the stuff that's going on. He kind of kept things on task. And so the servant brings the master of the ceremony and pours this new wine. 
And he takes a drink of it. And he is impressed. He calls over the bridegroom. Hey, most people will, will serve good wine. And then as people have had a lot to drink, they'll start serving the lesser good wine. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. It all tastes like cotton flavored badly to me. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> eh, it's not worth it. Um, but the point is, this, this guy knew his business because he was a wedding planner. And he says to the groom, this is impressive. You waited and brought the best out for last. And he was very impressed with that. This was the first of the signs that Jesus did. And he did it at a wedding in Cana, of Gal- in, Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. A couple of things happened there. His disciples believed in him. The servants believed in him. And then John says in chapter, in verse 12, again, because John does things well, he says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days, keeping in that chronological order. Now, the story I just shared with you is one of five miracles that are unique to John's gospel, right? Not the only five miracles that he talks about, but there are five that are unique to his gospel. You won't hear these or read these in the other gospels. And we'll cover some of these other ones as we go further into John's gospel, but here it is. Jesus, as we shared last week, the Word, okay, comes from heaven's glory, yet he walks over a hill to Cana to attend a wedding in, in Gal- and in he, he would like also to come to your wedding, by the way, and bless it. If you happen to know anyone that might be getting married, he would like to come to your wedding and your marriage and bless it. He would like to be involved in your marriage if you will let him after your wedding. He wants to be involved in your marriage. Here he is at the wedding in Cana, and he performs his first miracle and, and manifests his glory. And John says the disciples believe in him. Now, when you first look at this situation unfolding, Jesus' response to his mother can be confusing or troubling or maybe a little harsh. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, listen, he's simply telling her, if I do this, it's not going to change anything for you. But it's going to change everything for me. He's like, he's like, mom, my unveiling power is not yet come. That time is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. So he's not being disrespectful. He's just letting her know when I do this, everything is different for me from this moment on. And that's the, that's where there's that emphasis on woman. He, it's almost a plead, but he still honors his mother, and she tells the servants, "Do what he says." Because Mary, no doubt, uh, she has no doubt about the power and the anointing of her son. She realizes who Jesus is. And he produces somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, here's a thought. I, I don't want us to camp out on, oh, well, Jesus made wine so we can have wine and let's party and let's drink it. That's not the point. All right. Um, quick side note. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink, okay? And, we, and I bring this out because we like to use this as a justification for doing dumb things. But the, the Bible speaks very clearly in many places about being foolish and being wise. And I'm 47 years old, and I've seen enough people after one or two moderational drinks become very foolish and no longer wise, okay? So... I'm not here to preach against alcohol or if you have a beer or if you want to have wine, 
But don't use Jesus turning water into wine as your justification for being a fool. Okay? Let's just roll with that. Mary tells the servants, do what he says. And here's a thought. I think this wedding party running out of wine is a good picture of how the joy of this world will quickly fade and run away from us and run out. See, there's wedding celebration. They're like, hey, there's more wine. Hey, we're running out of wine. Same thing in our world. We grab a hold of things, physical things. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's your job. It's your next promotion. It's whatever. But we grab a hold of these things. And I got to tell you this. These things are going to run out. You're going to run out of wine. You're going to run out of money. You're going to run out of health. The joy of this world, the joy that this world has to offer, will quickly run out and fade away. Dr. Brian Simmons offers us this thought on the running out of wine at the wedding party in Canaan. He says, religion has failed. Religion has run out of wine, so to speak. Meaning the traditions of religion cannot gladden the heart. But Jesus can. Jesus is not going to run out. In, in, a, in a week or two, we'll talk about where he offers the woman at the well living water. He's not going to run out. Listen, Moses, the law, if you remember this, um, Matt referenced the, the Israelites being in Egypt. And Moses turned water into blood. But Jesus, our God of grace, turned water into wine. And it was, it was a party. I think it's a glimpse of what, what heaven's going to be like. Where Jesus is going to come with his bride, the church. But what really captivated my attention, as if that wasn't enough, what really got in my brain about this narrative is this. Jesus' first miracle involves servants. And these aren't even like the high-end servants. These are the backroom servants. These are the guys that... They're not out serving the food. They're just tending to everything in the back. Maybe that's your job. Maybe you're second or third tier somewhere at work and you're thinking, I'm always in the back. So these backroom servants, they're, they're not doing anything great, but they know Mary, which I think some commentary offers suggest that some of Jesus' family could have been involved in the wedding and that's, that's why they were comfortable. But either way, these servants were comfortable enough with Mary to let her know, hey, the wine is running out. I'm not sure what they were expecting her to do about the situation. Maybe she was told beforehand she's the go-to. If you need something, check with Mary. She's going to help out. I don't know what the whole situation is. But here's the kicker. Think about this for just a minute. And this just, maybe it's just me, but I think this is amazing. What would happen to this servant if he went to the master of the ceremonies and just poured out water into this guy's cup? Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't go well for him. And here's what I'm getting at. These servants didn't know Jesus. Okay, he hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't performed any signs. He really hadn't stepped out to do anything yet. Now, I mean, they mean they know him because he's Mary's son and his friends are invited to this wedding. But he hasn't even said to his, you know, he hadn't even said to his mom yet, my time has not yet come. And in this miracle that John shares with us, there's a certain act of belief and obedience on the part of the servants. They did it without question. They literally, they didn't know anything about Jesus except he was Mary's son. And without question, without hesitation, they did what he said, and something amazing happened. How about you? 
Are you willing to do what Jesus is asking of you, even if it doesn't make sense at the time? I mean, think about it. Hey, we're running out of wine, Mary. Okay, do what he says. You three, go get those ceremonial jars, fill them up with water. The washing jars? Yeah, the washing jars. Fill them up with water, all of them. Fill them up, it says, to the rim, to almost overflowing. And then Jesus says, now dip it out and go pour it in the cup to the master of the ceremonies. These are the washing jars. These are the backroom servants. And now you're telling me, dip it out and serve it to the master of the ceremony? I'd like to think that one of the servants was like, yeah, give him what for. (laughs) I don't think he did, but it's how my mind works. But I guarantee you this. The servant at the wedding feast who took that first little smaller jar of water turned into wine had a lot more at stake in this one act of obedience to Christ than you and I will ever be faced with. And you may be thinking, well, how can you say that? Because I'm fairly confident that for you to be obedient to Christ and do what He's asking you, it's not going to result in you getting a beating. If my man poured water into that cup and he sipped it and it was still water, and embarrassing the master of ceremony, embarrassing the bride and groom in front of all these people, culture says he would have been in a lot of trouble back then. It won't result in you getting a beating. It won't result in you being demoted into a lesser servant in the household after your beating. It won't result in you going to prison. You were here today, and you were holding God's word in your hand. You have everything you need to know Jesus more intimately. You have all the tools you need to know Him more intimately. Even more so than these servants at the wedding. You see, we need to follow their example. We need to submit to the light of the world and obey what He asks of us. We need to trust Jesus like the water servants did. Do you trust Jesus? Speaking of trusting Jesus, I want to share with you another story about a man who came to ask Jesus some questions. It comes from John chapter 3. You need to know this too, that before Nicodemus, and that's his name, before Nicodemus came to, to Jesus, Jesus left the wedding feast. John tells us this. He left the wedding feast. He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his disciples for a few days. And then John says, he then went up to Jerusalem for the Passover, where he cleansed the temple. It was the first time he went in and he, 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 he released doves and, and he, he, he turned things over and, and he cleansed the temple. And then while he was there, John writes that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And you need to know that because Nicodemus comes in. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to story this. I'm going to give you my version. Um, Nicodemus comes in and he's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the law. And, and he's also known as a ruler of the Jews. And, and he comes to Jesus at night, and he says to Jesus, we know that you are from God because of the signs and the miracles you have done. He says, we know that. He says, you're a teacher, come from God. And Jesus answered him and said, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, wait a second, how can a man be born again? He can't re-enter his mother's womb when he has grown. How can he be born again? And Jesus said, 
Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you're born flesh, you're of flesh. That which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. He says, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of the law. You are a teacher of the law of Moses and you're asking me these questions and you really don't want to know the answer that I have to give you. How often are we like Nicodemus? We ask a question. We get the answer from his word. But then we're like, oh, he doesn't really mean that. He might mean that for someone else, but he doesn't mean that for me. That's kind of where Nicodemus is. He says, how can these things be? Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things. We speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He said, Nicodemus, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except for him who has descended down from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then he says this to Nicodemus. Speaking of eternal life, he says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I told you last week, there's a difference between knowing and believing. Believing requires action on your part. It's not a, it's not a works-based faith, but it does require action. It's not just belief. So he says, God loved the world. He sent his son. And then he goes to verse 17. And we always forget to say verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. And then verse 20, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I made some notes in my Bible, and it says, I wrote, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, And does not come to the light. And the question I asked myself. And the question I ask you. Are you a doer of wicked things? I told you the first several chapters in John. He's going to talk about Jesus being the light. And the light shines out on us. And the light exposes our darkness. It exposes our wicked things. Are you a doer of wicked things? I don't want you to answer that out loud. But it was something that I thought... If sin is missing the mark, are you a doer of wicked things? Nicodemus was probably sent by the Sanhedrin to try and get Jesus to kind of align on their side because they saw he was doing miracles and they were like, hey, if we can get him to to kind of be on our side, we can really control the people. And he comes with with this plan, but to his surprise, to his confusion, he found that Jesus was more concerned with him personally because when you read this, he comes to Jesus saying, we this and we that and, and we all these things. And he, 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 but then Jesus makes it personal. It's 
what Jesus does. It's like I told you last week. You need to know that the personal God of the universe created you to be in a personal relationship with him. And Nicodemus came with an agenda. Have you done this? He came with an agenda. And Jesus changed up the game plan when he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It blew Nick's mind. He was like, he's like that little emoji with stuff coming out of his head. It's like, he was like, but what about this law? What about what Moses said? He's trying to bring back all this stuff. Remember what John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 17? Nicodemus is asking about the law, and Jesus essentially says to him, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know all these earthly things, Nicodemus, but you don't even understand those because you missed this one. And I'm right in front of you with grace and truth. Jesus is saying the same thing to Nicodemus when he says, look at chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He's, I'm telling you right here, I'm the truth, I'm the grace, and you keep wanting to go back to law. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, I want to make this very clear. The necessity of being born again makes imperative the lifting up of Christ on the cross. Jesus didn't mean a second beginning as Nicodemus interpreted it, but a different beginning. He is the God of new beginnings. He's the creator telling the created that the time is coming to do away with the law. And Nicodemus is missing it. He's telling Nicodemus that being born new requires putting the old self to death and becoming a new creation in Christ. Brothers, look at this. It's it's what we all must do. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Hey, Nicodemus, it's time to let go of the old law. It's time for you to embrace the truth and the grace that is Jesus Christ that's right here in front of you. It's what I'm offering you. What does that look like for you? Christian, are you like Nicodemus? Are you holding on to traditions and preferences like Nicodemus did? Are you doing that like he held on to the law? I want to tell you something. It's somewhat celebratory in nature. Huntsville Christian Church has physically been in this community for over 50 years. That's pretty awesome. Are are we getting comfortable with the laws, so to speak, or the traditions? Are we ready to do what Jesus has asked of us? Here's a thought. The servants that carried water for Jesus, they had other duties, and, and then I know they were... They were in the habit of, of submitting and doing kind of whatever they were told with no questions. That's kind of the, def- the definition of, of a servant. And maybe I'm overstating the obvious here, but at this wedding feast, we have obedience and no questions asked on the part of the servants who don't even really know Jesus. And then we have Nicodemus, who typically as a Pharisee, he's in the habit of telling people what they need to hear, what he wants them, maybe even telling others what to do. And he comes to Jesus at night with questions. And he listens to what Jesus says. And essentially he leaves with more questions. And the question I have for you is this. 
How are you approaching the Word of God? Those of you who accepted the challenge, who are reading one chapter of John every day, how are you approaching the Word of God? Those of you who aren't reading the Word of God, you need to. But those, if you're approaching the Word of God every day, how are you approaching it? Are you looking for loopholes? Kind of like Nicodemus. He went in with an agenda to get Jesus on his side, and Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, I'm here so that you'll be saved. It's bigger than you. Are you looking for loopholes? Are you looking for excuses on why you aren't doing what Jesus has asked you? Maybe you're still trying to be an editor of God's Word rather than a messenger of God's Word. Simply put, if we aren't going to grow, or excuse me, if we are going to grow into mature Christians that are followers of Jesus who are willing to intentionally invest in others to make disciples so that others will grow and mature spiritually to do the same, then we need to make sure that first and foremost... We love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, without excuse. And when we're doing that, then we will obey God's word with humility in what our only God has told us to do. And by the way, the rest of that verse tells us that we also need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. As we come to our response time this morning, what does that look like for you to simply obey Jesus like the water servants did? He has something so much better for you than wash water that we're settling for. I don't know what it looks like for you to submit to Jesus in this way. Maybe it's time for you to trust him without hesitation, Nicodemus. Give your life to him, submitting to him in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sin to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The baptistry is ready. Maybe your response of being filled up by him simply requires some repentance rededication, prayer, and accountability. The elders are here. They'd love to pray with you. Whatever your response is this morning, will you stand and sing our response song and respond to God's word accordingly? (laughs) Trust and obey. Uh, To be one of those water servants, to see that happen, I promise you their lives were different. It's been great to be here with you all this morning, to see you to worship with you, to be in God's word with you. But now it's time for us to go to win and commit to grow. As you go this week, my prayer has been that we will go like the water servants. Without question, without doubt, without hesitation, my prayer has been that we will go differently than Nicodemus did. You see, he came asking questions that he thought he already knew the answers to. And when Jesus answered him, he wasn't ready to allow the word of God to change him. We seem to have a lot of people like Nicodemus in our world that refuse to allow God's word to change them. In short, as you go into our world full of Nicodemuses, Nicodemi, I I struggle with that one. Be Be a water servant. Just go. Be changed by the Word of God, the completed, whole Word of God. Will you sing this last song with us?